Welcome to the Fright Lab. I'm Lucas Yoakum. And with me tonight, as always, is the only producer who hasn't forgotten his Hippocratic Oath, Mr. Joseph Wren. How are we doing tonight, Joe? I solemnly swear not to say hello to all of you gruesome people. Shit, I just fucked that up. <laughs> I, I, you know, I was really hoping you were going to do the actual Hippocratic Oath there, but you want to know what? Let's go with that. I'm fine with that. They say, you know, the first rule is do no harm. Mm-hmm. I cannot do harm to the words you say out of your mouth. Only you can say them into the microphone. You are the producer. That's nonsense. That's true. Okay. <laughs> so uh, before we get started on tonight's episode, I just want to say thank you to everybody who's listened to up till now. We are now 17 episodes deep into something that I didn't know we were going to get 17 episodes deep into. That's a big deal to me personally, even though it seems very tiny. Also, there was a brief uh, hiccup in our recording, which is primarily on me due to some uh, just personal stuff that happened. No one needs to worry. I'm fine. Everything's cool. I've completely landed on my feet. It's all good. But it did slow us down for a couple of weeks. So we apologize for any delay in recording. And we are just happy to be back in the studio and working. We have a beer. We have a coffee. We have a water. We have the full spectrum of the imbibable liquids we are ready to roll. I'm fairly certain whatever happens, we can handle it now. <laughs> so, without further ado, some members of our audience are like me in that they have pretty sharp memories of the internet prior to, like, Web 2.0. You know, by comparison, today's mostly sterile and anodyne online world, the internet from the 90s up to, like, the late 2000s was the Wild West. It was a lawless world of GeoCities and Angel Fire pages of black backgrounds with lime green text. You had bad MIDI renditions of songs and glitchy animations as website decor. Online shopping was still somewhat primitive, and you had to have a damn good security suite installed to deal with any potential online threats. We were all still dreaming of the movie Hackers, you know? One thing that I have a very strong memory of from that time period are the sort of urban legends that spilled out from forum and BBS cultures that were still kind of limping along. Before 4chan and Creepypasta, the weird and scary stories online still had a, I don't know, quote-unquote, told-around-the-campfire kind of feeling. And there's one such story that always stuck out to me. I immediately knew the story was pure fiction, and when you hear it, you too will immediately think the same thing. But it was a ton of fun, and had a sort of a primitive multimedia element to it by the time it reached me. And that story was the Siberian Well to Hell. Gather round, children. Grandpa Lucas has a story to tell you. For a good long time, the best source of debunking bad info online was the website Snopes.com. The good people over at Snopes were seemingly single-minded in their dedication to shedding light on and debunking the constant slurry of online misinformation. And this was well before the worst users of Facebook and Twitter had decided, or even had time, to vomit their misinformation into the collective consciousness of the world. In an era before QAnon, Snopes was a beacon of mostly rational information, and I'm happy to say that Snopes is still around today, and we will include a relevant link to them in the show notes. Alas, I worry that their power might not be sufficient to save us now, because even the most skilled surgeon can't fix a decapitation, you know? 
Joe, where was I? We were discussing the origins of the internet, and I don't mean the actual historical origins. I mean the general populace, the consensus. What was the internet in the 90s? It was static web pages, absurd animations, annoying sound clips, and I can't say that I don't miss it sometimes, because... Being able to pull up some of those classic websites, even on the worst possible connections, is something even today I wish I could do. I'm a fan of static web pages. I don't <laughs> need you to dynamically insert all of the formatting with JavaScript because blogs are a thing. I mean, the internet has grown, right? But it's also become more dangerous. It's also become less secure. There's zero-day exploits and all these other security issues that are being finally brought to light because people are exploiting them and taking advantage of people. And I think it's really, really sad. But if we go back to the beginning of the internet as we all know it, you're talking about a very simple time when the goal was to connect and share information with one another. And when you talk about some of those obscure, absurd websites... You're talking about the beginning where individuals chose to express themselves on a global platform. Whether that's good or not, I don't know that we're going to get into that tonight. But this is what the internet was in the mid-90s. And I'm excited that this has somehow brought you to this wonderful film, <laughs> Super Deep, which I, I have mixed feelings about. I don't hate it, but, you know, I'm waiting for us to get to the question the title of this episode is Super Deep. Actually, Super Deep. Well, in order to get to that question, we kind of have to talk about this phenomenon, the well to hell. I don't like exactly recall the circumstances of when I first read this story, but uh, the basic text of what the story was was preserved by Snopes, uh, and it's more or less the same as I recall it. Joe, would you do me the honors of reading us that August text? Geologists, working somewhere in remote Siberia, had drilled a hole some 14.4 kilometers deep, about nine miles, when the drill bit suddenly began to rotate wildly. A Mr. Azakov, identified as the project's manager, was quoted as saying, They decided that the center of the Earth was hollow. Supposedly, geologists measured temperatures of over 2,000 degrees in the deep hole. They lowered super-sensitive microphones to the bottom of the well, and to their astonishment, they heard the sounds of thousands, perhaps millions, of suffering souls screaming. Now, of course, this, this story is false. It's fake. Just reading it feels like the ridiculous stories that have been no doubt sent to you by distant relatives via Facebook Messenger. Either that, or they're just trying to get you into a multi-level marketing scheme, and I'm sorry if your relatives are like that. But what really sells this story in most of its versions, or at least the versions I have encountered, was an attached audio clip. In the era before streaming music and video, and dare I even breathe the term, in an era before podcasts. No! A streaming audio clip was a real treat. And I sort of miss the, like, twitchy, glitchy sound of these clips. It, you know, it just sounds like an era, you know? So this audio clip is 
admittedly a pretty freaky clip for the time. The good folks over at Snopes were happy to include a YouTube link to a recording from the Art Bell Show where he played the sounds over the airwaves. Joe, uh, can we play that for the audience? The uh, With the clip, The Sounds of Hell starts around the two-minute mark. And so I submit now they cleaned uh, a better copy to you. And uh, I warn you, what you are about to hear is very disturbing indeed. <laughs> So yeah, I can see where less discerning people might buy that story. And for a long time, I had doubted that anyone but me even remembered that story. That was, of course, up until I decided to make a late night watch of the Russian horror film Super Deep. My memories of that story from Snopes came flooding back because it serves as kind of a plot point for the film. Tonight, we're going to delve into the darkness of Superdeep and deal with the entirely too many themes to even list out there. But suffice it to say, I am extremely happy to have rewatched this movie recently. As the title of this episode indicates, the up top question is whether or not Superdeep has inside its plot, historical origins, and delivery any real depth, or if it's just another creature feature with some body horror elements. In order for that to happen, we're going to have to talk about the plot and start untangling its themes and influences. So grab your respirator and hazardous materials suit. It's going to get pretty icky in here. Might be understatement of the podcast so far. <laughs> I I don't know where to put this in the episode or if we just leave it here as it is. As much as I genuinely enjoy Super Deep, there's a couple of scenes that even I went, oh, oh, gross. <laughs> Mr. Corman would be proud. God bless you, Roger Corman. Nineteen eighty-four, the Soviet Union. An epidemiologist, Anna Fedorova, has just taken part in a disastrous vaccine test, which has left a close confidant dead. In the middle of a New Year's Eve party, she receives an order. She is being dispatched in a few hours to the Kola Super Deep borehole in Siberia. Twenty workers have gone missing, so Anna and a military detachment are to establish what's happened. Moreover. Strange sounds have been coming up from the borehole. See, in a stereotypically Soviet turn, things at Kola are not what they seem. Soon, 
Anna and the military team will be fighting not only for their own lives, but for the lives of everyone on Earth. So obviously, this movie is pulling a neat trick right out the gate. It's combining the internet urban legends of the Russian well to hell with some real-world details and well-established horror tropes, weaving a plot that's half speculative fiction and half creature feature. And yes, you heard me correctly, real-world details. We have a lot to unpack in this episode, so let's start here. Just outside the border of Finland, at one of the further extremes of the former Soviet Union, is the real-life Kola Superdeep Borehole. It holds the record for the single deepest vertical man-made shaft on the planet, measuring at an absolutely stupefying 40,000-plus feet, or almost 7.7 miles deep. The Kola Superdeep site was a project to try to get as deep into the Earth's crust as possible. The project concluded in 1995, apparently due to a lack of funds. It seems like Russia was going through a bunch of stuff at that time period. Who knew? <laughs> now, before anyone starts to think that a prehistoric meme and a recording actually is telling us a full story, we need to make a couple of points clear. Yes, the Kola Superdeep project ran afoul of massively higher temperatures than their equipment could ever handle. But at no point were there ever any audio recordings made, much less were there recordings of potentially demonic or infernal origins. And in a detail that seems left out of the reports surrounding the Kola Superdeep, the borehole itself was only nine inches in diameter. It's hardly the gaping maw in the earth that either the urban legend or the film Superdeep would, you know, evoke. Superdeep also leans a lot on science and sciencey details for things to work. And for the most part, I think it does this to winning effect. Early in the film, there's a moment where Anna, our protagonist, is taking an elevator down to the Kola research facility. There is an apparent malfunction on the elevator, causing the team to fall at too rapid a pace for them to endure. They experience something called G-lock a term used to describe when people lose consciousness due to exposure in rapid shifts of gravitational forces. This is usually a concern for fighter pilots, so seeing it inverted in a sense is actually kind of neat. It's a cool little detail, and it also sort of leaves you unprepared for the horrors that await uh, our research team and, and the soldiers. In the intro to this episode, I referred to the idea of body horror, and it occurred to me that I haven't really touched on body horror in any previous episodes of the show. FYI, this only slightly spoils the plot of the movie. No real details are given away here. So here's the way I kind of view body horror. It's a particular subgenre of horror relating to the perversion, betrayal, degradation, or violation of our flesh. It's not enough for some maniac to cut you in half with a chainsaw. That would suck, of course, but that's not body horror. But if some evil wizard cast a spell on you, which forced your flesh to slowly but surely crack and melt, that would be a type of body horror. The best-known exponent of this subgenre is, of course, David Cronenberg. Videodrome, The Brood, or his iteration of The Fly and Naked Lunch serve as a sort of ur-texts for the subgenre, and you could make an argument that Franz Kafka's The Metamorphosis might be one of the best and early examples of that in literature. 
Hail Videodrome, long live the new flesh. The correct quote, uh, actually, the correct quote is, death to Videodrome, long live the new flesh. Go ahead, argue with me about that. Trailers. They lie to us. <laughs> there is something primally awful about the thought that one day your body, the vehicle by which you interface with this world, could simply turn on you, or worse, be turned on you. Body horror ends up being a deeply unsettling way for us to be scared, and, in my approximation, one that requires a deep study all of its own. One day, my dear audience, I would love to do some sort of extended set of conversations about this subject, and if you would like to hear that, why don't you let us know? Email us at thefrightlabpodcast at gmail.com if you think we should talk about body horror. So, the connection between body horror and science and science fiction seems pretty natural to me. For instance, Cronenberg's The Fly shows us what happens when a science experiment goes awry, and in the case of The Fly, it also turns the film into a deeply unsettling sort of creature feature. And that's one thing I really love about body horror. It takes a lot of assumed known tropes within horror and forces it at gunpoint into this new terrible shape. It's bad enough to be attacked by a 12 foot tall insect monster, but it's even worse when the 12 foot tall insect monster used to be your Aunt Gladys, right? Uh, a final note about Cronenberg. He adds an extra special thing to his body horror by linking the experience of the body horror to sexual or romantic drives. As if regular body horror isn't bad enough, Cronenberg's visions of body horror are deeply, weirdly horny. Wow, dude. <laughs> and anyone who wants to pause the episode and take a shower after that, like I do, is welcome to do so. How would you stand up... I think Eli Roth is a good example. Cabin Fever or Green Inferno. Something where the bad guy in those movies is how the protagonists are reacting to the situation. I think Green Inferno is more of a slasher movie like a Texas Chainsaw where Eli Roth, he made Hostel, right? He's not a stranger to brutalizing someone on film but something like cabin fever it's just a flesh-eating virus to me that's body horror because how do you defeat that you know i think uh, uh cabin fever I, I i don't want to speak to green inferno because it's kind of its own animal really and like hostile is i don't like the term but it's it's torture porn i see why why the term exists agreed uh but <laughs> i man i've got to say that cabin fever is definitely a body horror in my opinion it's a pretty uh low brow kind of body horror it lacks the uh the cronenbergian let's try to make it sexy vibe which you know always fails i love you david cronenberg i genuinely admire your work man but stop <laughs> just, just stop doing that, please, for the love of God. Anyway, uh, no, I think that Cabin Fever, it's a gross, kind of uh, low-brow kind of movie, but it is highly effective body horror. It makes you squirm. It really does. Another really intelligent part of this movie, Super Deep, is how it blends another pair of primal fears together. Fear of isolation and fear of the deep earth are ancient deeply human terrors. An exposition point in the film tells us that there are two layers to the research facility. 
The residential portion, which is about 6,000 meters down, which is roughly uh, 3.7 miles or 3.7 freedom units. And I'm sorry, I just love the freedom unit jokes. I <laughs> leave that in. And the research sector, which is 12,000 meters or roughly 7.5 miles down. Unless we have a hidden demographic of serious spelunkers in our audience, most of us have never even come close to, to descending that depth into the earth. Even prior to the incident that sets off the events of this movie, I wonder how many people could handle living and working every day in that sort of environment. We weren't meant for that, right? And look, I think caves are neat and all. I live in Missouri. I have to think caves are neat, legally speaking. But I wouldn't want to live in all of that. Nah, really, I think I'm going to have to just pass on that. And I think most people would, too. One way the plot of Superdeep plays on that fear is by making allusions to hell throughout the environment. This is obviously a callback to the well from hell uh, audio thing, but it's also just so obvious, you know? Most of us are from a culture that assigns a semiotic connection between the depths of the earth with a place of terror and punishment. One of these days, I am going to get around to writing episodes about hell, the end of the world, that sort of thing. It is a pet subject of mine, so I don't want to spend too much time here with that. But as I was working on the concepts in this episode, I found several good, short-ish videos about caving accidents and fears associated with caving. Those, along with a pirate's bounty of research points, will be in the show notes attached to this episode, as always. Another overwhelming theme running through this movie is hubris. One thing that the more sci-fi-tinged elements of horror does really well is play with our tendency to believe a touch too strongly in our own abilities. The Cola Super Deep Borehole might not have yielded anything that we should really be afraid of, but I think the very idea of an audacious scientific and engineering feat has a whiff of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Attempting to bore through the crust of the earth couldn't help but cause the more imaginative members of the audience to start wondering what nightmares lie below the surface of the earth. Could we have finally gone too far, attempting to go deeper than anyone else? The center of our world seems permanently occulted to us, at least as of now. The hubris of Soviet science has been the subject of speculation since the end of World War II, and I wonder if there are sort of like conceptual hangover from the wild experiments and concepts found in Nazi science uh, experiments that were just bafflingly insane. Anyone familiar with like Hellboy or a boatload of early Marvel comics has heard the term Nazi super science. If you want to have a weird, distressing evening, I recommend looking up the alleged experiments conducted under the command of Joseph Stalin to breed human-ape hybrids. It's utterly insane, and it's likely a fake story, but the idea holds. Have fun looking that one up. I will not be leaving out links to that, because that's just too bizarre even for me. What about Wolfenstein 3D and all of the references to... Nazi super science well, that exists that, in media. I mean, I think people forget sometimes that in the 60s, and like Star Trek is a great example, they just made Nazis in outer space. Why? Because it was a bad guy that most people could relate to. You take that forward into the early 90s and even into recent years as the new 
generation of Wolfenstein games have been created, you end up with the Nazis just have technology and they never, ever went away. Marvel Comics is a great example, by the way, because Hail Hydra, right? Like, that's what that is. I I totally agree with you. And the longevity of the Wolfenstein game series, I think, probably lends a little credence to that. But at no point anywhere in the Wolfenstein series did any member of the Nazi party fuck a gorilla. So... I think to myself, like, yeah, I think there's a hangover there, and I think it's hard to ignore. And I think you're absolutely right. Like, from a fictional standpoint, Nazis are insta-villains, as they should be. Fuck them. But there is an element of that where it's uh, kind of unavoidable. Like, if you need an easy, uh, like, always eternally the wrong person, the Nazis are always a great character to use in that regard. And I think, I don't know, I think maybe culturally we've kind of soften our opinion to what a bunch of fucking monsters they were in many regards but i get it at the same time and i don't blame anyone who plays a game like wolfenstein and goes hey this is great because yeah you should probably feel that way i think brad pitt summed it up pretty well in uh inglorious bastards i have one job kill nazis <laughs> you know i i will i will save our <laughs> audience my impersonation of uh lieutenant aldo reigns uh, as portrayed by brad pitt but yeah the, you know what i i know it's not possible to do without getting sued into the floor but i would love to do a live watch along of inglorious bastards for this program not because it's a horror movie in any regard but god it's a fun movie I think we can work something out. Me and AJ over at uh, the Nerf Herder Council have been working on this concept of the live watch along and how do you keep the audience engaged since you can't just broadcast the movie on the internet. So, you know, we'll, we'll be talking. Don't uh, worry. There are a surprising amount of public domain horror movies, especially historical ones, that could be super fucking interesting to do a live watch along like, with. Like, why haven't we done a live watch along of Night of the Living Dead? That's Just saying it's that's an easy one. such a fucking obvious one, yeah. Right. There's a final thing I want to touch on, and that's how Superdeep shows what I think are its clear lines of influence. No real spoilers ahead for the movie. Uh, there's a scene where a bunch of soldiers head into a tunnel to deal with the horrors of the super deep. The way it's filmed and the way it's, you know, uh, acted immediately evoked uh, James Cameron's aliens uh, with regards to like tension, location, that sort of thing. The soldiers are headed into a dark, unknown space to face down a threat and attempt to rescue the uh, super deep's project inhabitants. And then there's this bridge scene uh kind of nearing the end of the film and they're trying to get a particular item off of the bridge instead of just having like uh, diegetic sound for the scene to show you what you're what what's going on in the space they're in the they opted instead to go for complete and total sound design and put in this beautiful choral piece and for me it immediately evoked Werner Herzog's The Cave of Forgotten Dreams which is an absolute favorite of mine I feel like it takes what kind of would have been an otherwise pedestrian film and an otherwise kind of boring scene and adds just this extra layer of, well, depth. It earns it, too. When you get to that point in the film, they've established clearly that is death. Yeah, when they get to that sequence, the, uh, the, the stakes are established. It's well into the film. You know how scary things are. Uh, it takes that that scene and it's 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 almost a relief 
it's even though it's terrifying and it's just horrific, it's also weirdly beautiful and weirdly artful. The whole movie, even as grotesque as it gets in certain spots, is weirdly beautiful. And it's that concept of, of it being weirdly beautiful, as well as some other things, that I think make this movie work. Super Deep is, in fact, a shockingly deep film. The setting allows for an analysis of Soviet Russia, both its historical negatives as well as its positive ideals. And you can talk at length about the various legitimate scientific and sci-fi elements that, that show up, and how this film often skirts the line between purely grotesque horror joint and very weird, gross sci-fi movie. The references to other films and online folklore could have been an annoying diversion, kind of distracting you from bad acting or whatever, but they are used in such a way that it actually like strengthens the story instead. There's no real wasted points in the film, and pardon this term, it genuinely pulls the trigger on Chekhov's gun constantly throughout the movie. There's a lot of clever little callbacks, items and concepts shown up that make you feel smarter when you catch them, and there's science concepts in this movie abound, so that's just notwithstanding them. In case you hadn't guessed by my gushing, I think Super Deep works. It could have been a convoluted mess. The two-hour runtime could have made this film more of an endurance test and, and totally take the fun out of it. And yet, its parts fit together almost perfectly. I can't really recommend this movie enough, and I really hope all of you guys go and check it out. We can't talk about the plot, really, without spoiling it. No, you really can't. And that's, man, that's one of the hard parts about this movie, too, is because I want everyone to see it, the plot seems really, really, like, simplistic and pedestrian. But then when you watch the movie, it just blows you out of your seat left and right. As I was writing out my notes and the script for this episode, I really had to look hard to find anything I disliked about this movie. And the only complaint I have, and that's nothing on the directors, the cast, or the crew, is that I couldn't find a version of this film in Russian with English subtitles. The only version I have ever found is an English dub on Shudder. And truthfully, it's not that bad of a dub, actually. Uh, I think the English language voice cast did an okay job. I just prefer to hear like the nuances and tones of a film's original language but that's basically a neurosis of mine and no one else's. I wrote this script at the beginning of January 2023, and I'm sort of hoping that this movie is a sign of things to come. Films like Super Deep really excite me. It's a sign of the quality of horror films available these days, and the amount of films available outside of the English language bubble, it's only growing. It's a good time to be a horror fan, you know? I really think we're only, like, scratching the surface of what's going to be on the market in the next few years. I see a sort of full scale of available material starting to happen. Not everyone is going to want, like, a gruesome splatter fest. You know, think Terrifier 2. Thankfully, there's a massive spectral of films from highly artful productions like The Love Witch to the inspired mania that is one cut of the dead. Oh, you don't you don't like those? How about Deadstream? It's equally funny and scary, and I'm going to talk about it in an upcoming episode. <laughs> no? No, you didn't like that movie? How about Phil Tippett's Mad God? It'll make you feel awful, and it'll entertain you. And maybe I'm wrong about this. I certainly don't know 
everything about horror as a genre, but I am excited to learn. So with that in mind, I have to ask, what do you think? Is Super Deep a brilliant twist on horror cinema, or is it just a mess of influence and concept? What are some Russian horror masterpieces we all need to check out? And are there any other horror films based on weird internet stuff that we just don't know about? We all know about Slenderman, so there's got to be more out there, right? Email us at thefrightlabpodcast at gmail.com to talk about this more. Joe, our audience would love to know more about your other projects. Would you kindly let them know where they might find more of your work? If you are a fan of all things heavy metal, hardcore, doom and gloom, you need to check out all of the podcasts we are creating at DiscussMetal.com. We talk about your favorite bands, my favorite bands. If you like nerdy things, not just horror movies, but all things nerdy, you should check out the Nerf Herder Council. I've been hanging out with AJ lately. We've been talking about Star Trek, and those guys just have the nerd thing down. I think they deserve your time as much as we appreciate your time. And that brings me to the Fright Lab. If this is the first time you've listened to this show, or if you've been here from the very beginning, we appreciate you. What I want you to do right now is take out your phone, scroll to the left, scroll to the right. However it's laid out, nobody can get on the same page as far as design goes. (laughs) Find the place where you can give this episode a thumbs up. If you can leave us a five-star review, if you can tell us what you think, we want to hear from you. We want to read it on the show. You heard Lucas say at the Fright Lab podcast at gmail.com. It's hard to talk about a movie like Super Deep. There are so many details that we have to leave out because we don't want to spoil the movie for you. That's not the purpose of this show. But we want to talk to you about your favorite horror movies. We want to hear from all of you. And maybe at some point in the future, we'll do some live streams or some Patreon content where we talk about the movie's plot and spoil the hell out of it. Because I just want to say so much, and I can't usually stand on confident ground and say, you need to check this movie out, but Super Deep is one that you need to check out. Lucas, tell everyone how much we appreciate independent artists. You know, uh, something about doing podcasts in the long term, it makes you very, very aware of how difficult it is to continue to bring new, fresh, exciting indie media into the world. But we do it because we love it. We work hard on this as much as we can. And if you are an independent artist, if you are a musician making some weird next level dark ambient or creating horror themed punk or heavy metal or electronic or industrial, or if you have a horror adjacent project you think that me and Joe need to check out, we believe that if you wanna go fast, you go by yourself, but if you wanna get there okay, you go with your friends. We want to like raise up everybody with this project. So if you have some new project you want us to check out, let us know. We will give you the email address again at the end of this episode so you can forward that information to us and we can help you out if you would be so willing to let us project your project into the world. And as always, The Fright Lab is written and researched by me, Lucas Yoakum. It's produced, engineered, and co-hosted by Mr. Joseph Wren. Provided it hasn't completely melted down, you can find us on Twitter at fright underscore lab underscore pod. And we can also be found on the Letterboxd app under the handle Fright Lab Pod. Please share our show with your friends and family or 
via social media. And you can find our show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, literally anywhere you get your podcasts. And as always, we appreciate you listening. Have a good night, and we will talk to you soon.